This is Ready to Real Estate, a TREB podcast. Each month, we interview experts in the field, discuss the data, and explore all facets of the housing market. Whether you're a first-time homebuyer or a seasoned real estate professional, you will benefit from our insightful conversations and gain property intelligence as we discover more about the key issues shaping our industry. Now here's our host, Jason Mercer. Hi everyone, I'm Jason Mercer, Treb's Chief Market Analyst and the host of Treb's Ready to Real Estate podcast. Today we're thrilled to be recording an episode at RealtorQuest 2023, Canada's largest real estate conference and trade show. On this episode, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Hadia Rodrigue to talk about the power of diverse and inclusive workspaces along with some of the barriers that stand in the way of achieving them. Dr. Rodrigue graduated from the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law and, in 2018, was named one of Canadian lawyers' 25 most influential lawyers. She is now an assistant professor of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough, as well as a speaker, award-winning journalist, and consultant with a PhD in organizational behavior and human resources management. Her research examines how race, gender, and parenthood shape perceptions and relationships in the workplace. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Thanks again. And, you know, I, I want to start off just by, you know, talking about an article you wrote for the Global Mail in, in, in the past. And, and you were first widely recognized for your thought leadership after publishing an article called Black on Bay Street. And this article struck a nerve with many people insofar as that after the first week, it was shared by or more than 13,000 times on Facebook, and the accompanying video was watched more than 250,000 times. Could you tell us why you wanted to write this article and why you think it gained so much traction in such a short period of time? Yeah, so the article came about when I was a fellow at the Walrus. So I would go sort of once a week to the Walrus, um, participate in story meetings, and they were talking about, I think, the hiring process in journalism. And at me being a former lawyer, they asked me what my hiring process had been like as a lawyer. And so, you know, I told them it was kind of like speed dating and like talked about shoes and I talked about hockey. And they were, they looked at me and they said, you didn't get asked any questions about the law? And I was like, (laughs) yeah, no, didn't get asked any questions about the law. It was really about sort of fit and like how people got along with you. And they were just gobsmacked that for one of our you know, most esteemed professions that the, the process wasn't very hard. Like, I like to tell people, the hiring process for me at Swiss Chalet when I was 17 was harder than any of my law firm interviews. <laughs> at Swiss Chalet, they got me to do math. They, because I was going to be working the takeout counter, they asked me some situational questions. So a customer says X, how do you respond? A manager says this to you, how do you respond? Whoever was working HR at Swiss Chalet in 1998 was really on their HR game. <laughs> And, you know, I was asked to sing in one of my law firm interviews. Like, sing out loud in in a booth in the Toronto Convention Center. And I didn't understand how any of what I was being asked would tell them what kind of person I was, what kind of student I was, what kind of lawyer I would be. And so I intended to write a piece that was about the hiring process. It was not supposed to be a memoir. I interviewed a number of people who were involved in the hiring process. I interviewed students who'd recently gone through it. Um, I looked at hiring documents, but it's like when I sat down to write, 
it's just the story just poured out of my fingertips. I was no longer in control. And it's just all the things I'd been holding in about my experience just kind of came out. And then it turned into a memoir. And I really didn't think I was doing anything novel or new. I didn't think I was doing anything special. I thought everybody kind of knew that this was the experience for people who didn't look like most of the people who were there. And, you know, that response really shocked and surprised me. I remember I was doing a social media cleanse at the time for another piece I was writing. I believe I tweeted, I wrote a thing, and then put a link to the Globe and Mail piece, and then put my phone away. That was it. And then my phone just started vibrating, and <laughs> just vibrated for the rest of the weekend. Um, and I think there's a lot of power in honesty and vulnerability, and that I was really kind of just bearing my story for the world, and people could find places in it where they related to. Did you find it surprising that, 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 that people found your account so sort of revealing, or...? Yeah, because I'm like, have you not talked to any black people? Like, this is not news. I, I didn't think it was news. Um, but I think there's just, it was really a story about belonging. Right. And I don't think there is a time when any person on this earth has not felt like they did not belong at right. some point. And so I think people could really connect to it, even if they weren't a black woman from, you know, with Caribbean immigrant parents. So right. I got emails from hundreds of people. I got emails from white men who didn't feel like they fit into the culture of masculinity on right. the street. So it was really a, a story about belonging and belonging in this place where belonging looks like one very specific type of person. Sure. And I, I think that's a nice segue into, you know, another question I had you know, written down and that concept of belonging, you, you've spoken a lot about how, you know, powerful a, a diverse and inclusive workspace can be. Uh, how do you define inclusivity and, 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 and maybe put that in context with, with the workplace? For me, inclusivity means the only thing that really matters is the work I produce and like my skills and abilities that other things that are extraneous and don't matter, don't actually matter. Um, that's not really what's happening right now. So, and I think it's, like it's such a shame. I, like, I just find it sad. Um, because why wouldn't you want the best people working for your organization? Right. Like what is in it for you if you're not inclusive? Like what's the ups, like what is the actual upside? I have right. yet to find anyone who can explain the actual upside to me of not being inclusive, of not making sure that people feel like they can be their best self, they can be their whole self. Because A, they're gonna give you better work if they feel like they can belong. And B, if you don't create a place that is a place of belonging, you're gonna lose talent. Because I think for you know anyone to look up, I'm gonna pick on lawyers, everybody likes to pick sure. on lawyers. <laughs> for anyone to look up at the top of Bay Street and think that that represents the best two that we have in our profession, it means that you think that talent is unequally distributed by race and gender. Because graduation rates from law school have been 50-50 for 25 years. Right. And if you think replacing women three, four, and five with men six, seven, and eight is equivalent talent, then you think men are smarter than women. That's really what you, the only thing you can believe. And for us to be inclusive and get to, you know, if you're speaking on the gender binary, like a 50-50 balance, that is better talent. That is unarguably better talent if you have 50-50 representation. I think just sort of thinking about it from an organizational perspective, I, I think most organizations would like to think or say that they're inclusive. 
Um, but I think there's a there's a difference between saying it and and sort of knowing it or, or, or realizing the fact that you, that you are indeed in, inclusive. So, like, what are some of the the signs of, of that an organization needs to look at if they're being honest with themselves that you know they they are sort of on the uh, vanguard of inclusivity versus not? Yeah, I mean the metrics, the numbers don't lie. Right. Right. So. What does your entering class look like? What is the makeup of the city that you were drawing your entering right. class look like? I'm not expecting a company in Kingston to have 30% racialized people when Kingston is 2% racialized, right? But in Toronto, for example, where the city is 13% black, I was at a firm that had the most black people of any firm on Bay Street, and we had five. Right. We had five out of 220, we had 3%. That's, you know, and we were doing well compared to other firms. And so, you know, are you, are you drawing a representative population in your entry level class? And then what is happening to them as they move up? Right. Because the research shows that one part of the pipeline tends to expand and other parts of the pipeline contract, right? So there's research from McKinsey that shows there's a really nice pipeline graph that they have that breaks it down by, um, racialized men, racialized women, white men and white women. Right. And you know, there's relatively equal proportion at the enter, entry level of the corporate pipeline. But as you move up, one part of the pipeline dramatically expands, two go down and one goes down by a significant amount. And that one is the women of color. And so you need to find, you need to use metrics to find those points where there is a shift, right? Like really finding those inflection points. Maybe you do a really great job of hiring. I think there's a lot of places out there that are actually doing a good job of hiring. But then if all your women leave at middle management, that's a you problem, that's not a them problem. Yeah. Right. So where are the places where there's a, a difference and then trying to figure out why that difference is happening. So let's say we're, we're losing women at middle management. Is it that there's a difference in their performance evaluations even though the performance is actually the same, it's being interpreted differently. Right. Or do people have the same performance, but it's being rewarded very differently? Are the opportunities that people are giving out very different based on, on gender? Um, what happens to mothers when they take leave? And what happens when they come back? Are they getting the same kind of opportunities sure. they were before? And so it's like not being afraid to look into their numbers. I think a lot of people don't want to look into the numbers because they know once those are real, they're going to have to do something about it, right? They can't hide from it when it right. when it's more visible when you've actually done that crunching. I think that's a really good point about the metrics. And you know, like I, I talk a lot about the housing market, analyze the housing market, commercial real estate markets. And one of the things I, I I'm often talking about is you know why do so many people want to move to the GTA? Why 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 is the housing market perpetually tight? Because there's tons of people looking yeah. for housing. Well, it's because of the diversity that's, that's built up in our region over time. Yeah in the sense that it's a virtuous circle, so people want to move here from all around the world to, to take advantage of that, and obviously the job opportunities that exist. And so to me, if there's that mismatch between the diversity in the population versus the diversity in some workplaces and, and in some uh, professions, to me that presents a risk, because what I'd like to see over time is that people continue to move here, they continue to, to be attracted by the diversity, but they can also take advantage of the opportunities that, yeah. that should exist. And people want to see that they will be rewarded, right? That they'll be able to be successful in a place. Yeah, so, um, and so maybe you can speak to that risk a little bit. Like, it, it, from your perspective, if, if we don't see the average workspace or place 
uh, representative of, of the, the diversity of our, of our population. If that continues, what's the, what's the risk for our, for our region moving forward? Well, I think there are always going to be environments that are more diverse than others that are less, even within an industry. So if we're looking like, you know, at one industry, you're just not going to have the most talented people. Right. You're going to be at greater risk of not doing well, of losing money, of not selling as much of your widgets or whatever it is that you're doing. Right. Um, and this younger generation, they really care about this stuff. And so, you know, you will get these kids who are in the majority who don't even want to come because you're not treating their friends in the minority yeah. right either. And again, you're just not going to have the most talented people. And then, you know, again, I'm going to pick on the lawyers. Clients are starting to demand a diverse slate working on their files, sure. right? And so it's going to be too late for you yeah. if you're now trying to scramble and put that together after the client has now started to ask for it. Right. You're going to be behind the people who were doing the work five, ten years ago and have really put in the time to craft their policies and be more inclusive so that they actually do have that on offer. Um, and a lot of companies are just like, we're not going to work with you if you can't staff our file with people who look like the people using our products. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. So, I mean, if, if you're if you're honest with yourself as an organization and you kind of look at the metrics, you look within, you kind of, you're, you're starting to get a feel that your clients are looking for something different than what they were in the past or, you know, the people you're looking to recruit to fill jobs. And there's a lot of businesses that are having a hard time filling positions right now. They're worried about their future because they can't fill the jobs they need right now, let alone, you know, for two years down the road. And so if you're looking inward and saying, you know what, I think diversity is the problem here. How do you tackle it? How do you get on top of it? How do you start, you know, um, starting to match what you're seeing in the, in the population generally? Yeah, I mean, no one is asking you to like instantly be diverse. Like that's not gonna happen. Right. So. I'll use what happened after my article that came out as an example. So I spoke with a lot of the black law students um, after my article came out. Because my article came out two days before hire, hiring week on, right. on Bay Street. And they said there were two responses from the firms. Group A say, well, that was that firm, that's not us, like that was them. Right. And just kind of point the finger or point the blame. Group B said, this could have easily been written about any firm on Bay Street, including us. Here's what we are doing to work on the problem. Right. Where do you think those students went? Amongst whom were in the top of their class, one was the valedictorian. Yeah. Did they go to A or go to B? Like, it wasn't even a question. Sure. They used that response as a, as a real metric as to where to go. So people are going to be asking, we're not expecting you to have... 50% women in partnership, but what are you doing to get there? Right. What are your policies? What are your policies for supporting um, people who take leave because of parenthood? Um, what are your policies to reintegrate people in the workplace? What are your work allocation policies? How are you making sure that all the good work isn't going to one group? And that you know people of color, for example, don't have to work, like, work twice as hard to get on those great files the way someone else just kind of gets the benefit of the doubt, just gets assigned to that right. file. So, you know, what are you doing? What are you trying? What have you tried? What hasn't worked? People are starting to really ask those questions and you need to have answers. Right. You, you just need to have actual answers to those and the way you have answers is by actually trying some new things. 
And I think people appreciate honesty. Like if you're getting asked these questions and you don't necessarily have the answers to all of them, but you say, look at, you know, I don't know or, or I don't have the answer to that, but, you know, we're going to find out yeah. or we're going to work towards it. I think, you know, as you said, you know, the, the, the people that were in Group B that you spoke to, they at least said, look, we, we acknowledge that there's a problem and we're going to work towards yeah. uh, fixing it. And I think, you know, people appreciate that. I want to talk a little bit more about, about hiring and, and, and the concept of, of anonymized hiring. Um, so it's a word you hear a lot about, but uh, I, I think people would be interested in understanding a little bit more of, of how that works and, and I guess how widespread it is now in Canada. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a few studies that point to how it can be helpful or its importance. So one of the seminal studies on resume screening sent out 5,000 resumes, identical resumes. The only difference was the top. Some of them use a stereotypically black name, Lakeisha, Jamal, Hadia. Some of them use a stereotypically white name, maybe Emily, Carrie, Greg. I don't actually, I know a black Emily. I don't know any black Carries, and I don't know many black Gregs. Um, But it was like, you know, Greg uh, Morris or something that signaled whiteness. The white resumes receive 50% more callbacks than the black resumes for the exact same resume. And the researchers were curious. They were like, what would we have to do to Jamal's resume for Jamal to get the same callback rate as Greg? Do you have any guesses? Change the name. Other than changing the name. So they added some experience. How many years of experience do you think they needed to add? One. Eight. Eight. They need to add eight more years of experience to Jamal's resume for him to get the same callback rate as Greg. Oh, sorry, I misunderstood. So they kept the name the same, but you... Like, yeah, so, so they kept it as Jamal, right. but added had to add eight years of experience for Jamal Jones to get the same callback as Greg Morris. Right, so the premium and experience was eight years yeah. because of a name. Yeah. So when my dad told me it had to be twice as good to be considered equal, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't wrong, really. Right. And the... That anti-black racism piece has persisted. So someone's done a meta-analysis looking at all of these types of experiments from 1989 to 2015. Right. And basically the rate of difference went unchanged, roughly 40%. There's other research that shows that a black man with no criminal record will have a lower, higher written rate, a callback rate, than a white man with one. And not that we should police, we should um, penalize someone having a record and, you know, trying to make a fresh start, but right. it, it just shows, you know, some of the issues. Um, it's, it really highlights them. And so I don't think a lot of people who are doing this are doing it intentionally, right? They don't even realize that they hold this you know, unconscious bias towards others or that they make, are making assumptions based on what they read, but it is happening, right? And I've been in rooms where I'm talking to a thousand people from a variety of employers and I say, okay, how many of you are surprised, not surprised by this or have heard this before? And like almost all the hands go up. And I say, okay, keep them up if your employer does anything about them in the screening process and all but like 10 hands will come down. So these are things we know, these are things we expect, yet most people do absolutely nothing about them screening. And so there are a few law firms I know that have started using this anonymized process. Right. So they'll just kind of, it'll hide the name. Okay. It'll reveal it at some point in the process, but yeah, yeah. the first initial, you want the first initial reaction about someone's resume 
to be about the things they have done. Sure. Like reacting to like, oh, that's a cool experience. Yeah. Or look, they have eight years of this, you know, relevant experience that might be helpful for this job that they're going to do. Not first initially you know, twigging to what the name or gender is. Right. And so it's just really kind of, you know, putting down a, a barrier so that people's, you know, natural instinct to categorize and stereotype does not take over. So let's assume we get past all of that and so somebody gets hired and they're 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 in the workplace. Yeah, step, does, one. step one. Step one. Of like yeah. step one of a hundred. Yeah, so you you show up and, and you know the first few months you're starting to get a feel for you know the 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 makeup of that organization, the social interactions that take place with, within that um, workplace. You know how sort of important is that when we're talking about inclusivity and, and, and maybe talk a little bit about the concepts of, say, microaggressions in the workplace and, and, and that type of thing? Like, what sort of marks a, a bad workplace versus yeah. a, a good workplace once you're in, in the door? So I usually like to bifurcate this into... So there's things organizations can do in terms of their processes. Right. But so much of work is not, did I get that promotion? Did I get hired? You know, did I get that opportunity? So much of work is showing up every day and how do I feel when I interact with the people in my office or in my workplace? And that is where I think that microaggression and that belonging piece can really kind of hype up and be amplified. So a microaggression is when someone says a comment or does an action that is really grounded in a negative stereotype about that group. And so, you know, it's when the Asian Canadian kid who's been born here and lived here his whole life gets told, oh, you speak so well, right? When English is their first language. Yeah. Or when, you know, when I was told, oh, well, I, you know, we didn't think black people skied. <laughs> so, like, right. didn't think about you because... You know, black people don't skate. I'm like, I've been snowboarding since I was 13. I'm probably better than you, dude. Like, it's fine. Um, or so when someone's making this kind of negative assumption based on who you are or a group that you belong to. And they can be really, they add up. Like, no one was yelling profanities at me in the hallway of my Bayshu Law Firm. Sure. But it's the small things. It's really those signals or suggestions that you don't actually belong here. People like you don't belong here. People like you aren't supposed to be here. And they're small, but they add up because they often happen daily. They happen multiple times a day. Yeah. And then how, how do I report that to HR? Do I go into HR and say that like when they found out I was going to be the associate doing most of the work on the file, that one client looked at the other client and raised their eyebrow? Like I knew what that eyebrow meant. Sure. They didn't think I was up to, the, up to snuff. I was right. up to the job. But do I go report that to HR? If I reported everything that happened to me, HR, I'd be in HR's office every day. <laughs> and then I would be seen as the problem. Um, but the way I deal with microaggressions now, I don't say, that's racist, that's sexist. People get immediately defensive. Right. I'm a lawyer. I ask questions or I play dumb. So, you know, for example, I had someone say to me, well, you're not really black. So I held my hand. And I rubbed on it. I'm like, well, this doesn't rub off. <laughs> so what do you mean I'm not really black? Right. And then it got really awkward because the answer was, well, you don't fit the like ghetto black stereotype that I have in my mind. And so 
they couldn't say that out loud, so they were just silent. So I continued, because I have zero chill, and I said, am I not black because I sound like this? Am I not black because I went to law school like you? Am I not black because I play Ultimate like you? Am I not black because I think Radiohead is the greatest band in the world and there is nobody who will ever, like what is it that makes me (laughs) not black? Because I'm black and I do these things, therefore these things are black. But please, educate me, what are the black things and what are the white things, I'd like to know. Right. Like silence, right? Because it was really rooted in, in this stereotype that black people are not competent, that black people are not talented, that black people don't sound like me. If there was one black person who does something, that that's a black thing. Like, it only takes one. Yeah. <laughs> and there are black people doing every single one of the things, so all of the things are black, all of the things are white, all of the things are queer. Like, none of the things belong to anybody. They're just things that humans do. Yeah. Not things that a particular group of humans do. And so I always, I turn it, I make it humorous and I turn it on them. So yeah. another thing that happened to me, I have an afro some of the time, and someone asked me if the carpet matched the drapes at work. And at the time, I just froze because I couldn't believe someone was saying this out loud to me in a professional environment. But if that happened to me now, I would turn to them and I would say, oh, I've never heard that before. What's the carpet? What are the drapes? Again, I'm not saying that's racist. I'm not saying that's sexist. I am putting it on them to explain. Because if there is an innocuous explanation or they genuinely did not mean something harmful. They, they are presented with the opportunity to explain themselves. But 99 times out of 100, you know exactly what, why they're saying this. Because what, what's that person's two options? They can either say nothing, because I, just by asking the question, instantly shame the them. Yeah. Or they can be like, well, the drapes are your hair and the car. Like, like. And then if they do that, I will look at them and say, oh, do you normally ask your colleagues about their pubic hair in the workplace? Like, is this a, a normal thing for you? <laughs> and again, like, what, what yeah. are they going to... But you will notice, I have not accused anyone of anything. I have not said that they're racist or sexist. I have not... I've just asked questions. Right. And sometimes someone will say something, and they really don't actually mean harm, even though it does cause harm. Sure. So I'd be like, oh, well, like, why, do you, why did you assume that? Or why do you think that? Or why did you think I would know the answer to that? It, 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 and then it puts them on, puts it on them to actually like unpack. Oh, like why did I ask this person this, or why did I actually assume? So you know, let's take a work example. Um, let's say someone comes back from mat leave, yeah. and there's an opportunity that they think would be perfect for them, and they're not, they're not given that opportunity, and. They hear basically that their their boss didn't think they would want that coming back from Matt Lee. Yeah. So I would say like, oh hey, like I was interested in the opportunity. I'm just curious as to you know why you didn't think I was a good fit for it and what I could do to be prepared for the next opportunity. So right. Again, asking a question, not saying I wanted that you should give it to me. You didn't give it to me because of sexism or racism. Yeah. But putting it on them and they say, oh well, I didn't think you know because you're a kid. You'd be like, oh actually, like I am looking for that kind of opportunity. I you know. I, my kid thing is fine. I, that part is taken care of. Like, I don't, you know, please give me these opportunities. And then maybe that can be, you know, fixed or corrected. Because they were benevolently trying to be, it was benevolent sexism. Sure. But having an adverse impact on you. So it's always for me, questions, 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 or play dumb. Right. So uh, you dealt with it in a, in a forward and sort of questioning manner. 
Um, I guess what advice would you have for people that maybe aren't as sort of forward or, or, or outgoing that are maybe dealing with similar sort of microaggressions in, in, in the, because not everyone's wired the same way, right? Yeah, but I don't think it really takes being outgoing to, okay. it's just like you're just asking a question. Oh, yeah. like, why would you say that? Because the other option is you say nothing. Right. And then you're kind of giving permissibility to those kinds of uh, comments or questions. So, and the other thing is like, it doesn't have to be the person who was asked who has to be the person asking the question. If you are next to me and you hear that kind of comment, sure. you should say something. I think a lot of people wait and don't want to pipe in when someone has been harmed by a comment. But I'm like, you should also be insulted by that comment, not yeah. just the person it was made to. You should not want those kind of comments made around you. So let's say you're in a group of men and someone is saying something misogynist about women. A woman does not need to be there for you to disapprove right. of this comment. You should disapprove of it because these things should not be said out loud or thought or agreed to. So your bro says something and you say, why would you say that? Or what do you mean by that? Like, have you never met X or Y? Like, you know, questioning what they're saying. They will listen to you more than they will listen to the woman that we already know they don't respect, right? So, you know, men especially will respond to those questions and probing of other men. Um, so don't be afraid, like, especially when people who are not around are the subject of those comments or jokes. That is when I think you have the greatest onus to speak up and disapprove and question and get into it. And we talked about at the beginning of our conversation about you know some of the signs of whether uh, an organization is inclusive or not. And I think certainly that would be a, uh, a sign to the positive side of the ledgers if you if you have people that are identifying you know microaggressions, yeah. identifying you know bad behavior, yeah. and, and speaking out about it and, yeah. and pointing to it. Consequences for bad behavior. Yeah. To me, that is like one of the biggest signals. Because if you don't have consequences for bad behavior, the people who do bad behavior stay and get rewarded, and the people who are the subject of the bad behavior end up leaving, right? And so, you know, I remember being at an organization and being told by like seven different people not to work with somebody. Yeah. And I thought, why is he here? Why have you kept him? Like maybe he does 10% better than the next person, but if sure. they're making everybody else around them 30% worse, are they really a net positive? Yeah. Are, are you really saying to me that your organization does not believe enough in its HR department to be able to find someone who does this job who's not an asshole? Yeah. Like there's enough people looking for jobs out there. I, I think you could like have the confidence that you, you could find someone or promote someone who's not gonna be a jerk. But too often, there's just no consequences for the person who engages in bad behavior. All that they learn is that they can engage in more bad behavior and no one will do anything about it. Imagine if someone had had an early consequence for Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Right? Instead, nothing was done, more permissibility, he did more and more and more bad things and accrued more and more power. Right? But if we actually have a negative consequence for someone, then they will stop that behavior, hopefully. Yeah, it gets us back to that notion that, you know, more and more people are going to be like, you know, if I'm in the workplace and I'm being told not to work with this person, not to work with that person, I'm going to think twice about working here better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, the, the whole organization suffers as a result. And it kind of gets me to the last question I wanted to ask you. Um, it's about sort of turning it on its head. And so if someone asks you, you know, what's the best career advice you could give? 
you know, someone that's out there, maybe they finish law school, maybe they're going into another profession, you know, what's the best advice you could give for someone that's, you know, just starting out, looking for a job, they're going to start doing some interviews, what should they be looking for, what should be some red flags? Talk to the people who look like you at the organization, talk to the people who have left the organization. Um, Do your due diligence about a place and about, you know, I care more about how I care less about how a company tweets about Black History and Black History Month. I care about how they treat their black employees on March 1st. That's what I care about. And so do your due diligence. Speak to people. Ask them what it's been like for them. um, Because they're going to be the best barometers of what it's actually like to be at that place. Um, And make sure that you ask questions about their policies and what they're doing, what their metrics are. You know, don't be afraid to ask those questions. Because a place that is not going to like you asking those questions is not going to like you asking those questions when you work there. Yeah. Right? So if they're not even comfortable answering those questions in the employment process, that is not a place that I want to award with my labor. Your labor is valuable, especially this is a a seller's market for labor, right? (laughs) To speak in real estate terms. That's right. Um, And so know that your labor is valuable and that you want to reward a place with that labor if it feels like it's a place that's going to support you. I think it's a really good point. And, and here's the question. So w- when you were just out of law school and you were interviewing for, for the various jobs that you did versus today, how much more open do you think uh, companies are today when uh, a prospective employee says, look, and I want to meet some of the people in your firm. I want to ask them some questions versus you know when you were first looking for a job. I think much more open, especially um, a lot of the way things work in some of these professional environments is that you kind of get the job and then there's this period where you kind of decide if you're going to join and then they're wooing you a lot. Right. Um, so I worked in consulting um, yep. at one of the large consulting firms. And so, you know, you went through the interview process, which was very structured. Sure. Then you got the job and then it was them now trying to convince you to come work there. Right. And I remember at firm A, I they like introduced me to every black person who was working there. I got a call from the head of another office who was a black woman, and I was like, okay, I can see myself ascending. This is the person who's made it to the top. And they knew it was important to me. It was after my article had come out, so obviously they knew these issues were top of mind, and they did a really great job in, like, saying, like, this is what we're doing, these are the initiatives we've got, this is how you'll be supported. They even had, like, an entire black network um, that was basically, they had their own support staff for black uh, professionals. And one of the other firms I went to that I had an offer from, I didn't meet any black people. And I was like, hey, can I meet a black consultant? And they're like, actually, we don't have any. And instead of confront, if they'd confronted that head on, yeah. and say like, hey, we know, you know, you would be the are one of the first, or they had someone joining who hadn't joined yet, you know, you'd be the second, here's what we're gonna do to support you, then maybe I would have gone there, but it's almost as like they ran away from right. it and they just didn't want to confront it. And like, how, how do you think this is gonna go? You circulated my, my article around the office before I came. You had to have known this was important to me. Right. So like, why are you running away from this challenge? Um, and so don't be afraid to ask those questions because the right place for you is gonna to wanna to answer them. 
And again, it's it's about identifying those companies that are that are going to be you know forward looking and, and and proactive. Not necessarily perfect. But, no, but, I'm but, not expecting perfect. No yeah. one is perfect. Um, versus those that are not. So I, I think a lot of great points today, and I really enjoyed our our, our conversation. And, and I certainly learned a lot, Dr. Hadia Rodrigue. Um, thank you very much for sharing all your valuable and thought provoking information today. Um, and and I. You would really like to have you back on the show at another time as well. That'd be cool. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That's it for us. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media and visit our website, treb.ca. That's T-R-R-E-B dot C-A to find market insights and more. This has been another episode of Ready to Real Estate. Thanks for tuning in.